How is AI going to impact my job? White collar jobs are under threat and they're under threat because we've spent a good 15, 20 years pushing everybody to learn digital skills and automate software. And of course, that just makes it even easier for an AI to come along and automate. People are losing clients because they're turning to AI instead of an artist, they're turning to an AI instead of an agency, they're turning to an AI instead of a copywriter because it drives bottom line. So there are some low-level jobs like junior software engineers who I think are going to be, you know, really struggling. People coming out of university are going to be really struggling because they spent four years locked in a room learning stuff that after that four years, when they come out in four years' time, it's probably not going to exist anymore. You know, there's going to be 300 million jobs around the world which will be affected by AI, impacted and jobs lost. And 300 million is one in 10 of the global workforce. We're facing structural unemployment here. Hello and welcome to PolyWeb. I'm your host, Sara Landi Tortoli, and my guest today is Theo Presley, a globally recognized futurist, TEDx speaker, and author of the book The Future Starts Now. With Theo, we explore the potential impact of emerging technologies, and in particular AI, on your daily life and on your job, what you can do about it, and the challenges that we face as a society moving forward. In this conversation, we do really cover a lot of ground, so I hope you will enjoy it as much as I did. Theo, you define yourself as a futurist. So I would really like to ask you, what is a futurist and how does one become one to begin with? I think, first of all, it's really important to say that I didn't give myself this tag. I, um, other people started calling me a futurist because of my writing. So I've been in the technology industry for about 20 years, I've been working for 25. I've been mainly immersed in technology and software change, business change projects and things like that. And I started to write about what I used to see happening and how they related to various technology trends. So, you know, all the way back from mainframe computing to big data and cloud, IoT, predictive analytics, now we've got AI, we've got I, you know, we've got AR, VR, et cetera, et cetera, and metaverse and web three. But all the while I was um, while I was doing all of these projects, I was kind of writing about these trends and how what people were actually doing with them rather than what the analysts were saying were going to be done with them and what people were, you know, so what was happening in practice rather than what people were dreaming up as uh, fantasy. And, and I would start to project where these trends would go in the next sort of five, 10, 15 years or so. And so when I started writing and doing conferences, people would say, oh, you're like a, a futurist because you imagine what the future is going to be like using all these technologies. And I thought, eh, okay, fair enough. I'll uh, I'll take that job title or that you know that title, and it's kind of stuck. I mean, I don't have any formal foresight training because you can go to university for these things. I just fell into this profession, I guess, and I think because I look at it from a practical sense as well, I, I find that it's it's far more relatable rather than looking at it from the academic sense. All right. So, what is uh, in essence? Uh you know, that a futurist uh, does. Uh, what is it uh, in the way that you look at, at the world uh, and uh, in the way that you look at technology, you know, that in essence make, make your, your predictions uh, right or, or like make people notice those predictions, if you know what I mean? Yeah, so I think it's important to say that Futurists don't predict absolute futures. I mean, you know, the, the common one is like, oh, can you give me next week's lottery numbers? It doesn't happen like that. Okay, no crystal um, ball. That's clear. No, no crystal ball. What we, tr what we try to do is actually help people prepare for possible futures. So there's various scenarios. If you say, oh, we have uh, augmented reality or artificial intelligence, because obviously we're talking about this today. What's going to happen with AI? Well, you can look at where historical trends have where we've come from so ai we've been living with ai for a very long time in various guises with algorithms etc and guiding us through throughout our lives in society and, and our software that we use 
And you can say, right, well, there are certain number of scenarios that might come true, are likely to come true more than others, and will definitely come true. And then you've got outlying scenarios like it's going to take over the world and kill everybody, et cetera, et cetera. So our job is to kind of weigh up what are those probabilities and then prepare people for those probabilities and say, well, on the spectrum, these are the most likely ones to come true. These ones are not likely to come true, but they could have a large impact. And of course, that gets you to understand risks versus reward. Yeah, it reminds me a lot of psychohistory. Have you read the book Foundation from Asimov? Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah, it reminds me a lot of psychohistory and, and then uh, everything that, that, you know, went uh, went on with the book and uh, the disability of uh, analyzing the past uh, in a scientific way in order to be able to predict uh, the future mm -hmm. with a certain <clears throat> level of accuracy. And speaking of uh, predicting the future with a certain level of accuracy... I would like to start by talking about maybe the most important uh, technological innovation that we, we are seeing so far, and uh, is already causing uh, quite a huge amount of uh, personal and social change, uh, which is uh, AI. And in relation to AI, I want to know, how should we think about AI as a technology? and why do you, I have my theories, but why do you think AI is a, a significant and different innovation compared to other technological innovations that we have seen so far? So again, it's, it's important to say that we've been living with various forms of AI for a long time. I mean, uh, if anyone here is uh, listening or watching is using Twitter, for example, There's an AI that basically feeds your um, your your Twitter feed algorithm algorithmically. It sorts out which ones it wants to show you. Your uh, credit score for uh, uh, you know applying for bank loans and mortgages is driven by an algorithm that assesses you in various criteria about lending. So you know we've lived with AI and algorithms and machine learning for a long time. Um, you know Alexa, Siri. Google Assistant, etc. What we have now is significantly more advanced, and the difference that we've the, the difference now that we see between history, for example, the Industrial Revolution, the the advent of the um, the motor car, etc., it is a technology that one is extremely familiar to everybody because we live with it. It's been thread throughout science fiction books and movies, so we're all aware of the various, you know, utopian and dystopian uh, impacts. So culturally, we've lived with it for a long time, and we're very aware of it. But AI is something that has literally hit everywhere all at once. You know, it it is literally with everybody. Everybody has access because it's free there's lots of examples where it's free now stability ai midjourney open ai they all have free variants so every so everybody can test it play around with it enjoy the benefits get something out of it and understand how it works and we do not have a technology that's pretty much comparable to that um, especially in the take up you know not even the mobile phone had a, a an impact like that essentially so It's disruptive and it's an inflection point in society and in business where it, is, it has hit everything everywhere all at once. And therefore, we're expecting to see widespread you know, social and technological change as a result, whereas the Industrial Revolution didn't have that. And, and of course, if you overlay robotics on top of that as well, because we're now getting to see a lot of investment in general purpose robotics to basically handle some manual tasks for us and you add ai on top of that then you have you know almost an exponential disruptive force hitting society and and the workplace and again that level of automation has not happened before yeah yeah i had an aha moment the other day i was uh you know preparing for, for this interview to talk with you. And I was doing some research, listening to some podcast. 
And I listened to one uh, where Harari, Yuan uh, Val Harari mm-hmm. was a guest. And he said something that I was like, ha ha, that, that's true. Um, he said that AI is uh, different from any other technological innovation that, that we had uh, so far, because for the first time, we are outsourcing decision making to something external, right? Even the most powerful uh, uh, technology that we ever invented, even like the atomic bomb, let's say, right? Humans have always retained the power to choose and make the decision. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and instead with AI, it feels like we are outsourcing these... Uh, important component uh, you know of uh, of the way we operate uh, and that uh, has led us ultimately to be the probably maybe it's not the only thing but um it probably led us to be the the first and foremost species on on the planet uh, and now if we are sourced is the question is uh who do we become yeah so it's it's a it's a much bigger question than that uh, because if you look at AI, where where AI is today is is it's very singular in what it can do. So it can um, it can ingest documentation and it can ingest pictures and spit other things out. And so in terms of levels of creativity, it's still very much human driven. You know, I give the decision, I give the order, comes out with a, an answer, and that's fine we still have the agency in the next 10 years that's going to be different because artificial general intelligence i'm expecting to arise and from that is an ai with the level of intellect the same as a human being which means the same as what you've just described which is you know that level of agency is no longer ours there is a sense of purpose within the ai that drives it to make decisions on its own it's not going to sit there with a a blinking prompt asking what to do next. It's going to be already thinking about what to do next and what's my daily task life, you know, blah, blah, blah. What am I going to achieve today as an AI, et cetera? That's going to, you know, it's going to sit there and it's going to think about what it wants to do. Whereas today we still instruct it. And that's quite mentally challenging for people to get around their heads around, because in a sense, you know, there is, you know, we, we tend to anthropomorphize. There's there's no sentience behind this. It's not conscious. It's still a machine. We will externally anthropomorphize this as some kind of living entity. And we're going to be conflicted, you know, mentally and spiritually as to what it means for to be a human being if we have something that is almost taking away some of the meaning in our own lives. You know, the cre- the artistry, the creativity, the musicians, you know, so you know all the um, you know sociology, philosophy, all of the all of the humanities kind of disciplines, I think are going to be potentially our strongest defense against this, because and you know we we still want to retain that level of creativity and our thinking, and our mental capacity, um, and we don't want to outsource that, uh, because that's what makes humans. You know, and civilization, its greatest strength. And I think it will begin to question the meaning of, well, what is a job? What is a task? Why did we spend 200 years sitting in an office processing credit card applications and mortgages when we could have been doing something meaningful with life instead? And frankly, if that kind of decision making comes along, well, that's a kind of split in society that makes us think more about what is the value that we are doing at this moment in time versus over the next 10 years, if an AI can do that, then it should, in theory, free us to be more meaningful and drive civilization forward in a better direction. What we need to now do is actually corral the AI to actually do all the the boring stuff and not give that away. Yeah, I mean... To a certain extent, uh, even without going to AGI, right, that stands for Artificial General Intelligence, I think AI is already making decisions for us. Like, for example, TikTok, you know, if you scroll, there is no human that is deciding what to show you in the feed, right? It's 
it's decided by an algorithm, right? So I already think that to a certain extent, uh, algorithms are already making decisions for us uh, and influencing our life. The question is uh, how much bigger is gonna this is gonna get, right? How many more important decisions are, are we gonna are we gonna outsource? Uh, and it's happening already bit by bit. Uh, and uh, going back to your point, uh, what what should we retain? Like we, which skills? Uh, you know, mm. we don't want to outsource, etc. It feels so weird to me that actually what AI currently is uh, very, very good at, uh, it seems to be the creative stuff, right? Mm -hmm. Like the mid-journey with with this incredible ability to generate a super beautiful image, right? Uh, Or or like uh, the ability to write a book, for example, yep. like, so if, if you prompt ChatGPT, you can write a full-fledged, uh, a full-fledged book, basically fiction and nonfiction, right? So, how do we remain relevant uh, in in such a changing world? What are the skills uh, that we need to possess uh, to be able to adapt to this constant uh, innovation? And how do we make this defensible? Like in the sense mm. that I don't have to change skills uh, every other day. Maybe I can keep, you know, I can keep up uh, for a while, but it's also a problem related to age, right? Because when you are 18, it's very easy to reimagine yourself, you know, very, very quickly. But as you age and you become, uh, you know, 50, 60, 70, it becomes increasingly more difficult. I think it's a I think it's really important to remember that writing a prompt does not um, confer the skill or the talent uh, behind it. Okay, so me saying, oh, generate a photograph of a, a, a nice bowl of fruit and there are laughing people in the background, blah, 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 that does not allow me to claim that I am an artist who can actually draw any of that because I can't, I can't draw for shit. You know, I can't draw. I've got a a decent photographic eye, but I could not understand how, what the focal length is, you know, the correct composition, et cetera. And, And that does not make me a photographer and it does not make me an artist. And, you know, I've written a book. That's great. You know, I, I put the effort in and, and, you know, with others to, to basically write a book. But if I'm, if I'm, using chat gpt or or something more sophisticated over the next couple of years to basically write every chapter for me and all i'm saying is write me a chapter about blah and it does it for me then does that make me an author or a writer well no because i have not learned any of the skills related to any of these professions and i think we have we have to remember that there is still value in the art of creation where a human is behind it and i think you know what's going to happen right now is everybody's rushing towards this. They're, they're they're creating lots of content. It looks very manufactured. It looks great, but you can tell that it's been manufactured by an AI. But if everybody has the ability to do it, then that just makes it extremely cheap, and there's no skill behind it. And what will happen then is that people will get bored of it because it's everywhere because everybody can apparently do it and be creative with it. It's not real creation, but, and so we'll see the swing of everybody going towards, and 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 I've, you know, I've got friends and I've noticed people who are losing their jobs and losing clients because the client is happy with good enough as an output from these tools. So, you know, artists, concept artists and artists are losing their job, copywriters and freelance writers are losing their jobs, et cetera, and losing gigs because the, the, the client just wants to do it and will pay $20 to ChatGPT or MidJourney for the output rather than the $200, $300 for a, a human to do it. The trouble is, is that if everybody does that, then you get the same kind of output and eventually there's no differentiation. And what will, might happen is actually people will start to go back to value human artistry in a sense, because there's more skill involved. You know, I've, I've spent 15, 20 years writing articles. You know, an artist has spent 15, 20 years doing what they do. 
because they went to college, university, they learnt how to compose a piece, how to use the tools, how to draw, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. They know what's you know, and, and then they know how to interpret what a client request is. Same with a musician. A musician spends years understanding music, understanding how to play an instrument, etc. Now, if you give that to a robot and it just automatically does it, is there any soul? Is there any create you know creativity behind it? Is there any value behind it? if everything that we could do and create is suddenly manufactured and automated. I don't think there is. And I think there will be a cultural backlash. Uh, we're seeing that with artists already. But I, I, I think to boil human culture down to digits, ones and zeros, I think is a very dangerous path for us yeah it is but what's the say in english i'm gonna butcher this i'm i'm, I'm already <laughs> apologizing for all my english speaking uh you know native but the, the and please correct me but the i think the say goes that uh, if it's quack like a duck and walk oh. like a duck then it's a duck yeah yeah you know what i mean yeah. uh so that's what um i'm personally i'm afraid of that uh as the technology progress and uh, the AI improves, so it will improve the way they write, you know? Uh, and of course, like, they, they are not creative on their own, right? Mm. But if the end output is uh, as good as one a human will generate and everyone can do it, will we really value that something is done entirely by a human and how do we prove it furthermore right then it was done entirely by a human yeah i mean there, there are tools already that are there to detect whether an ai has had any influence and if anything they're there to protect ip and copyright right now because we know that uh, open ai and midjourney and stability ai and, and even adobe have all used everybody else's work to train the algorithms and and of course that they're they're using that work one without permission and two without compensation so if i have an artist that spent 20 years right uh drawing something and all of a sudden i find that my art has been used to train an, uh, an algorithm and its influence is it can be seen in output generated work you know why why should i not become uh, you know directly compensated for that and and it, it, I understand what you're saying in terms of, you know, once we get down, you know, in the next 10 years or whatever, that, that it becomes more advanced, it's going to be very hard to tell. But I think on the flip side of that is as that gets more advanced, so will the, the tools that protect the IP will show that this is a generated piece of work. We need it because otherwise, what, how do we know what to believe that's been generated on the web or what's pl placed in front of us? I mean, this is where we get to uh, manipulation, you know, and uh, coercion and things for political campaigns, even the basic news and facts, articles being rewritten on the web without us knowing. That's the other thing as well is that, you know, and the more, the more generated work and content that is on the web, that in turn continues to train algorithms to the point where it could be drawing on sources that are entirely generative and have no basis in fact yeah how do you solve these like i'm curious to know your opinion this is i think it's uh, a big big not often spoken about uh, side effect of ai you know like you can generate perfectly credible informations that are completely false right they have no basis uh, in reality because yeah. the machine is very, very good at, you know, making it sound like, a, yeah, it's plausible. Mm -hmm. and, and you could rewrite history like this, basically. How do you preserve what's true? Um, I mean, we've already seen where Google has used OpenAI output as its own input and inference and, and citing sources. There was a question, um, not a question, there was an example of uh, a lawyer uh, this week who was found out to basically use ChatGPT in front of a judge to basically cite 
particular sources and you know these cases blah 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 my defenses and cite this particular uh, you know this court this court case and none of them existed because it had, you know chat gpt had made it up and of course the judge got very angry and again that's there's there's two there's two avenues here there's one where you could actually say right well we need like i said we need stronger ai to basically combat and tell us what is truthful and what is not or we place the onus and financial responsibility and moral responsibility on these companies to basically fact check and prove everything that is spat out is is actually factually correct but the other thing as well is that it might actually force us humans to be more critical um, in terms of thinking and that's something i think that we've lost a lot of over the past number of years especially through so through social media because we take everything at face value we've been driven down a path of reading clickbait and then believing that it's true and then spreading it out on uh, various other platforms uh, with outrage and things like that and if we're in a, a post-truth world where we can't trust anything that we see hear, or you know or read then i would hope that that would force us to be more critical of everything that we see hear, and read whether it does is another matter because humans are lazy (laughs) aren't we yeah yeah we'll get back uh, again we'll get back to critical thinking and skills but i Mm. want to ask you about the impact of AI in uh, in the job market, because this is something very practical that I know that a lot of listeners care about, right? Mm-hmm. How is AI going to impact my job, what I'm doing, right? So how do you see AI is already changing uh, different industries, right? And what, what other changes uh, do you see coming uh, in the short and medium term future yeah sure so i mean there are various reports goldman sachs is uh, is is the one that's often cited which says you know there's going to be 300 million jobs around the world which will be affected by ai uh, impacted and jobs lost and 300 million is one in 10 of the global workforce and that's quite a lot so that's we're facing structural unemployment here now this will not happen overnight and I think that's important to stress, but I think it's really it's also equally important to stress that people are making decisions about these jobs already. So IBM have said, "Oh, we're going to look." You know, I'm looking to the IBM CEO has already said, "I'm going to I'm going to shed seven, eight thousand jobs in the back office, and it will be as a result of AI." You know, I expect to see AI improve the back office, and we won't need those jobs. Telecoms industry has already started. BT's announced uh, 55,000 jobs lost over the next uh, couple of years. Now, the majority of those are um, contractors who work to do implementations and installations. But there's a good 10 to 15,000 jobs in call centers who will be affected by this because they want to put AI in front of uh, customer service. So white collar jobs are under threat. And they're under threat because we've spent a good 15, 20 years pushing everybody to learn digital skills and auto and, and automate software. And of course, that just makes it even easier for an AI to come along and automate because essentially they're, they're watching us, how we use the software, they're watching us perform our particular tasks. And all we're doing is just filling in ticking boxes, uh, completing fields. And that's just so easy for a, an AI to do. And that's just now. Imagine what's going to happen in the next 10 years when these things get more uh, more intelligent. And of course, like I said, business leaders are starting to make those decisions already. You know, especially, you know, marketing, for example, like I said, people are losing clients because they're, they're, they're turning to AI instead of a, an artist, they're turning to an AI instead of an agency, they're turning to an AI instead of a copywriter because it drives bottom line. It's it's a lot cheaper to use. The output's a lot faster. And like you said, you know, is anyone going to tell the difference? Probably not. So who cares? I don't really care now. You know, it'll cost me $100 versus $5,000 to engage an agency. And I can get the work like that. Eh, it's not good. I'm, I'm going to sleep at night. I don't care if the other people don't. 
you know, because it's been driven from the top down. CEO says we need to save money, so I'm going to save money as much as I can. And and it's it's just going to come now. What's interesting is that people think, especially in business, is that it's going to be instantaneous. To be able to use generative AI or AI at its level, you need to have a very good understanding of your data architecture in your business, especially at enterprise level. If you implement AI on top of something that you have no idea how your data estate looks, whether it's you know whether your customer records are, are correct or not, you're going to garbage in, garbage out. Okay, and there's going to be a lot of failed implementations just now. So fundamentally businesses and enterprises are going to have to think about that for a start and then you start to filter down well if i have what are the jobs that are going to be lost well anything back office can be automated even frontline office a customer service that frontline first line of defense you know when a customer has a complaint or whatever chances are they're going to be talking to a bot from now on and then when it gets too complicated or where they have particular pre-authorized limits to handle certain queries or where it needs a human and and some empathy, like you know, a bereavement process, for example, in a bank, you're going to hand that over to a person. You're not going to let a chatbot deal with someone who's just who, whose father or mother has just passed away. So there are, you know, there's going to be plenty of other kind of jobs, software development and engineering. You know, two years ago, I had I had running battles on LinkedIn with software engineers who said, "Hey, it's never going to take my job." Now I can prompt my way into a job by, you know, by basically getting code snippets. Do I understand what they're doing? You know, what it's doing? No. Do I need to? Well, by the looks of what clients are asking for, probably not. They just want the output. So there are some low-level jobs like junior software engineers who I think are going to be, you know, really struggling. People coming out of university are going to be really struggling because they spent four years locked in a room learning stuff that after that four years, when they come out in four years' time, is probably not going to exist anymore. So who else have I seen? I've seen PhD biotech candidates who have who are being under threat because their team leads and their bosses are using ChatGPT to, to look through research, to do data labeling, you know, that kind of thing. And of course, PhD, you know, how long have someone spent, you know, in degree course, master's degree, learning their PhD, job that they always wanted to do, it's taken them 10, 12 years to, to, to train to do it, and now all of a sudden someone is using ChatGPT to do all of the functions that they basically wanted to learn about the job. So that, to me, says, well, that's stripping away entry-level work straight away for a lot, you know, a vast majority of people. And then you have middle management, for example, as well, who are on high salaries. What are they going to do? Are they going to be paid high salaries to babysit an AI? Well, no. So those middle management jobs, which don't really add a lot of value, are going to be exposed and they're going to be, you know, let go as well. So there's actually going to be sections of the enterprise that people don't realize are going to disappear and it's going to be very hard progress through their careers as a result of AI. And I can see that being hit between the eyes in the next 10 years. Wow. So in contrast, uh, what do you think instead are the most defensible professions and things that, I mean, if you were a student right now, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, having to, you just finished high school and now you have to choose, uh, you know, university. Right. Which university do you go? What is going to be your profession? Or even, you know, like uh, let's assume that you're you're out of university and you have like an entry job. Uh, one of those that you just mentioned, you know, that mm. can be potentially automated. What do you do? Where do you do you look? Again, I wish I had the answers to that. So I, I do believe that the humanities and, and, and a certain level of the humanities and arts and culture are defensible at this point in time. And again, for the same reasons that I cited earlier, which is people are going to value the, the empathic you know, connection between human create, created and curated work and thinking rather than automating jobs which don't really add any value to society. So, so there's that. 
blue collar work as well so trade professions you know robotics are starting to come up but in terms of their impact i still think blue collar work is going to have a significant drive because we you know again humans are creative we're inventors we're very physical in what we can do as well we can manipulate our environment very well so that means you know building you know trade skills are are still always going to be needed and again it's it's that human level connection of of our connection to not only ourselves but to the environment i think are going to have far more value than again sitting in an office doing office type work you know how much of society is driven on work that adds no value and i think that's going to be an interesting not conundrum but an interesting thing that gets exposed as a result of ai and that might drive differences in education as well so again like you say you know people coming out you know children coming out of school you know i remember talking to a high school and one of the criticisms of high school were from from the the pupils was why do i need to pick a profession when i'm 13 years old why do i have to pick subjects that i could define what kind of career i'm going to take and I'm 13. I've got no idea what I want to do when I grow up, but I'm being asked to pick, you know, physics, chemistry, maths, think about what you want to be when you grow up. And it's just like, no, why shouldn't, why can't I explore what life has to offer first and then think about academics afterwards? And that, that could be something positive as a result of AI, which is it completely changes our attitude to education. Yeah. Like, I'm always like thinking, positively i think like about things so i see the downside it's not that i don't see the downside and i think that the road to change is often quite traumatic right Mm. and and can be also full of unpleasant things but but as you said you know it's also an opportunity to reimagine society maybe Mm. and the narratives that we spin around society right like one question that comes to mind is, do we really need to work? As humans, do we really mm. have to work? Can we just like uh, live life and pursue our our passions and uh, not work uh, like a nine to five? Like because we have designed uh, society around the concept mm. of work, right? Yeah. I think it's very much the results of uh, the protestant ethics kind of taking center stage culture as a cultural model around the world right because of the british supremacy first uh, right Uh, and then the american so like the the ethical protestant basically you can i think if you want to be very simplistic yeah you can resume it in in uh, labora, which means uh, pray and work right (laughs) That's Latin for pray and work. And uh, and so largely we have organized society around the concept that you get, you have to be productive. You have to work because uh, work is a way that you get closer to God. Mm. I think we lost the God in the equation part at one point. We dropped it out, you know, throughout history, but we didn't lose the work side of the equation mm. yet. So like, I don't know, but, I think it's maybe a good moment to rethink about concepts such as, really, do we have to work? How else uh, could we reimagine society? Yeah, I mean, so Sam Altman, who obviously uh, runs OpenAI, said, you know, AI could dismantle capitalism. And that's quite an interesting throwaway comment that he made, because it very very well could, like you say, you know, to reimagine society, you have to go back to the, the, the base roots you know, what does it mean to have a society or civilization? Do we need the same kind of government that we have now? You know, do we need to have a capitalist mentality where everything is driven by acquisition of wealth and power and not for, you know, to, to, to push humanity forward in different directions? You know, where would we, you know, if you think about AI doing all of the, the, the crap and rubbish jobs, you know, it's not going to mean that we just become a hedonistic society and we do whatever we want and we party all day and eat grapes like the Romans and the, the Greeks did. Because at the end of the day, the Romans were still extremely productive. They gave us lots of things. 
in terms of irrigation, you know, understanding plumbing and, and building. The Greeks did all the thinking. So it wasn't that we were all lazy and did nothing. We still did lots of things as, as humans. Um, and if it allows us to become more inventive, to, to, to give equal opportunity to people who, you know, whereas before didn't have the opportunity to think, didn't have the opportunity to be educated, the opportunity to thrive, to be creative, because they were told, well, yeah, you have to be brainy to get an education or you just go and work in McDonald's instead and just get a job. And that's how you contribute to society and you get paid tax and blah, blah, blah. I think AI, uh, especially AGI, has the capacity for everybody on this planet to basically sit down and think, what does it mean for the planet as a whole? Why do we have nation national borders? You know, why do we have taxation? You know, why do we have governments who clearly don't serve the people anymore? They're not elected in the right way. We don't have true democracy. So has democracy failed? In which case, what needs to come along? What we mustn't do is basically replace the you know, you talk about God and work and, you know, replace God with AI. So everybody's working because we, we need to we need to achieve or touch AI instead, which means the technocrats, we become a technocratic society. And that's the last thing that we should do. We, I mean, we're halfway there already by giving all of our control and privacy and data and everything to all the um, the big tech companies. AI has the danger of actually just cementing that even further rather than dismantling it. So you know there's lots you know these are existential questions and they're f huge questions i think and there needs to be a number of steps in front here decentralization this is why web3 is really interesting because of the decentralization and distributed control uh, you have universal basic income well that's part of the equation that can get us to a successful conclusion it's not the end goal a lot of people say UBI is what's going to solve everything. Well, it's not. It's just one small part of a much bigger puzzle. And we have to keep picking at that bigger puzzle, I think. Yeah, I think we have uh, some way to go. And I think like maybe the problem is that we are not asking ourselves those questions uh, almost at all. And what I think is slightly concerning, uh, or, or like maybe not slightly, a lot concerning, <laughs> is that I don't see governments uh, really being brought up to speed uh, on those type of technologies, uh, right? Especially AI. Because mm. we were talking about this in this conversation, you know, people are going to lose their job. There are already forecasts uh, around it. Um, and, and the governments uh, will have to face the fact that in the next probably 10 years, there is going to be a large chunk of the population uh, unemployed. And uh, in Europe, where you have like the welfare system, you cannot sustain that level of unemployment. So how should government uh, think about uh, AI and the challenges that AI is posing? Most governments are bankrupt. I mean, most countries are bankrupt. So there's no money printer that can, you know, support uh, 300 million people out of work. The other thing with government is that they're replaced every four years. So even even if I sat down today and said, yes, I'm going to put things in place and I'm going to put UBI and I'm going to make sure nobody's out of work and blah, blah. And then I lose the next election and the next guy comes along and the next woman comes along and goes, ah, I didn't believe any of that stuff. So we're not going to do that anymore. So the governmental system is recycled every four years. And so it's always going to be somebody else's problem to deal with. And this is the this is the fundamental issue that we have is that there is no long term thinking anymore. It's just what can I do to win the next election? And then what, what can I do to keep power for four years and then I don't care what happens after that because I get a pension and everything else. And and so there's no ultimate accountability and there's no responsibility for, for any decision-making anymore. And it just disaffects every generation to the point where it's almost like we've given up hope of ever achieving anything. 
you know, so and and the other thing as well is that politically governments do not have the the knowledge or the skills inside to understand what's happening outside. So if you look at all these leaders sitting down with all the heads of all these technology companies, who have they got to actually, you know, none of those leaders actually understand, you know, 75, 80% of the words coming out of these people's mouths. And so they have to rely on advisors and think tanks, you know, and academics who in turn probably don't understand, have been paid by and lobbied by a lot of these technology companies anyway, so they exist because of technology money and are so far removed from the people on the ground that this affects that they have no relatability to real life issues anymore. You know, litmus test. I always speak to people that who talk about, yes, we must onboard lots of people, blah, 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 to our new technology. I keep saying to them, stand in the middle of a, your local supermarket and just look at what people do. Right. And you will see people worried about their own lives, that they don't care because they have no time to care. They have to, they're worried about how do I pay for the shopping? How do I pay the bills? Oh, my child has been naughty at school. Oh, look what the Jenners have done. There's a new tele reality TV show I need to watch on Netflix. No, you know, and then, you know, they don't have time to think about some of the bigger things because They've, you know, we go all the way back to the beginning of the conversation, which is outsourcing. And it's like they've outsourced their thinking about the societal issues to the governments and to the technology companies and everybody else. Because they, they, you know, unfortunately, they trust everybody else to do all those big picture thinking. What we've lost is the fact that we as individuals have the agency to change and take charge of the future. So if you have 8 billion people on the planet who suddenly wake up and go, I've had enough, enough's enough, I'm not taking any more of your crap. The governments of the world are going to set up and take notice because they don't want riots and they don't want structural unrest. And part of me is actually wanting 300 million people who are facing job loss to all suddenly stand up and go, enough's enough. You either do something about it now or I'm never going to work again. And that's your problem to deal with. And... We kind of need that kind of societal shift, that pivotal moment, not only because of technology, but people standing up again and, and taking their agency back. Yeah. It's throughout history, this happened uh, in the past, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and it often, unfortunately, happened in a traumatic way, like through through war, through revolutions, when it was mm -hmm. internally facing, right? Uh, so I wonder if this is avoidable, if we start, you know, asking ourselves those questions uh, earlier and really uh, start having this type of conversations earlier, right? Mm -hmm. And maybe like decentralized technologies uh, could be a good place uh, uh, to to start with that, because uh, uh, I know you also written quite a bit about the metaverse and and Web three and decentralized technologies, but in relation to all those innovation happening, like we talked up until now quite a lot about AI, right? But there are mm -hmm. other innovation coming our way, not just in the field of AI. Uh, we just mentioned decentralization and and the metaverse, right? Right now. No one is really talking about it, but there are a lot of companies still working on making this happen, mm -hmm. right? Uh, but we also have uh, astonishing type of innovation in other fields uh, like biotech and the longevity sphere, right? Uh, um, uh, space, the space industry. So as humans... Uh, how do we cope with so many changes coming seemingly all at the same time, mm. you know, uh, to, to rock our world? Uh, probably, most probably in the end, in the long run, in a very positive way. But, you know, change, we, we said this before, it's often traumatic by nature, right? So what sort of skills uh, do you think we need to have in order to survive uh, a changing world. Yeah, I think it goes back to my point about 
critical thinking and analysis. I think we've lost a lot of that. And and you know, touching on again on uh, right back at the beginning, a bit of foresight uh, and futurism. You know, because it, it, it you know by combining those kind of sort of thinking skills, you, it allows you to understand the impact of these technologies on your own life and whether you want them to happen in the same way or not. I mean, like I said, a, a lot of the technocratic sort of decision making that's been happening right now is they're telling us that this this technology is good for us. Um, we need to adopt this technology. We need the AI. We need social media. We need biotech. We need chips in our head, etc. But we as individuals and as a society aren't equipped anymore, it seems, to make those decisions to say, no, we don't. Hang on a minute. I, I don't want this particular future. I want this this future here. And I think that critical skills, those, uh, you know, those critical thinking, critical analysis, futurism to decide which type of future I want designed for me and my family and my ancestors and everything else. I think people just need to start start taking charge again you know, an ownership in a sense of what the future look, should look like rather than being told what the future is going to be. We've kind of relinquished that command over the last sort of 25 years. Even I've noticed that. And you get swept up in the excitement, but also distracted by lots of other things. Like I say, reality TV shows, what iPhone is going to do, you know, do next, emojis, GIFs, TikTok, etc. It's all very distracted. And it drives us away from more pressing issues that we should be taking charge of. So, yeah, that's 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 kind of my thinking is that we should start to imagine the futures that we want to live in and then start thinking about, well, do I want that particular technology to be a part of it? And if yes, then what should that technology look like rather than accepting what people are telling us the technology should be? Yeah. I mean... Like further on the path of of this thought, you know, seeing this as an opportunity instead of as a threat. What are the concept or or narrative or structures, call it as you want it, that we can rethink that we didn't got right the first time around? Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like. Uh, if we see this as our chance uh, to improve the way we live, the way uh, we interact uh, as a society, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, what is it that we have the chance to do differently? Um, <laughs> that's a wide one, that is. I think, so I think our reliance on technology is one that we should have, that we should have a chance to rethink. How pervasive should it be? And also the, the the loss of privacy and the loss of data privacy that we've forsaken for the perceived uh, convenience that we got in return. Our relationship with money, and then it all goes back down to the the economics, uh, um, jobs and everything else. You know, what is our relationship with money should be versus what it is now? Uh, you know, because we literally do work ourselves to death to earn money that we many of us are from paycheck to paycheck but does it actually make us any happier no it probably doesn't i think i think the other the other thing that we we do an awful lot of is we always look up so we always look up at what the what the person above us has and we should aspire to have more things whereas we don't look down as to what we've achieved and you know on where we've where we've come from you know, and I think that's that's something that we should have a rethink. And again, that's our perception of our own status in society. You know, so look down once in a while and actually be, I think, be proud of where you've come from rather than try to sort of say, oh, I, I wish I had something else. Well, do you really need the something else or are you ha- or, you know, are you happy with with where you've, what you've achieved so far? So there's, I think there's a lot of psychological as well as technological things that need to happen between people. Yeah, absolutely. Theo, we are approaching the the end of this this conversation. Really, I want to, as a last question, uh, if you mm-hmm. don't mind, uh, I would like to ask you about uh, what are the 
the potential uh, concerns or uh, ethical concerns, most specifically, and risks uh, that you think uh, are gonna we are gonna need to face uh, short term, right, mm-hmm. uh, in relation to AI, and that we should be prepared for. Well, I think overall we need to be we need to understand what what ethically we want to do with AI in the first place. I think we're rushing towards this new technology without much thought that's been thrust upon us, let loose, and we've all grabbed it. And then, but none of us have actually sat back and goes, well, hang on, should we using, should we be using it? Who should be using it? Because yes, they they want ever, obviously they want to say, well, uh, AI should be democratized and everybody should have access to it. But we've already seen, you know, people are using AI for such bad reasons, you know, you should not be using AI to replace things that that are human and, and empathic based. For example, there's lots of people who are using ChatGPT and other sort of AI chatbot tools as a replacement for therapists. Now, that's not the the correct use and ethical use and morally good use of AI because it does not understand you. It does not convey emotion. It does not understand emotion. It does not understand context and it doesn't display empathy. Like you said before, it's very good at convincing you because it's eloquent. It uses the right type of words in the right right way. I'm very sorry about your condition. Suddenly that goes, oh, oh, you understand me. Oh, you're sympathizing with me. Oh, that means you must know me and stuff like that. No, it's not. It's just strung the right words together in a very convincing way. And unfortunately, like I said, we're good at anthropomorphizing. So we suddenly project, oh, this thing is alive. It's it's a person. It understands me. It knows what I'm talking about. And then I'm going to spill my guts and, and it's going to treat me as a, as a patient. You know, and, and these are unethical, re- highly unethical use cases that can cause emotional and, and mental damage and physical damage. Someone has already committed suicide as a result of this. So, you know, uh, you know, you could go, you could go and say, well, this is morally wrong. We need to think ethically about use case of data and 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 IP and copyright and blah blah blah. But I think we should actually step just step back and say, you know, what is morally right and what is ethically right to be using to use AI for, and start from that. Um, but unfortunately, it's been let loose in the world, and and it's very, you know the genie is out of the bottle, and it's very hard to put it back in. Yeah, that 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 was my my thought. Like, who's asking these questions, mm. right? Because that's one of my biggest pet peeve, actually. You know, because as a product manager, like I I work with uh, software engineers and tech team to build technology, right? Mm. And uh, when we build technology, the way we do that, uh, we never really think about uh, the sociological, societal uh, implication or psychological implications of the things that we put out in the world, right? It's an afterthought. But what we care about is uh, maximizing uh, the KPIs and the metrics <laughs> in the business strategy. That, that's that's yeah. what we do. You know, like we look for problems, uh, you know, that our users uh, feel, you know, they experience. Uh, and then we combine these, okay, what's the company strategy, right? Uh, mm. And this is how we create uh, solutions. Uh, we are not trained. Uh, that's a tragedy. We are not trained to think what are the consequences of the software that we really put out in the world, and I think like this is an educational problem. We should study ethics. We should probably study mm-hmm. philosophy and sociology yep. and not just uh, code, right? And engineering. Uh, so one part is that, but the other part, we go back to governments, right? Because I think that even if uh, we, one nation put limits on the research and development of AI in a country and the other don't do the same, Mm-hmm. It's like it serves no purpose. It's a race to the bottom, basically. Yeah. I think AI is one of these technologies that actually needs a global response. 
rather than a country by country response because of the impact that it has. And unfortunately, like you say, if one country says, oh, we're going to ban ChatGPT or we're going to stop, it just means that the other countries are going to accelerate ahead of you. Um, and no country wants that because we're still in that kind of sort of, well, well my that country's got more than I have and I need what they have, blah, blah, blah. China, oh no, China's bad. We must beat China. It's, it's you know, there's not a, there's no global political effort here um, because they're all scared of each other. That's the thing. Yeah. Well, Theo, I feel like this conversation has been like brain candy, basically, or like the equivalent <laughs> of it for me. And I'm sure yeah. for the listeners. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, seriously. I really enjoyed our conversation and, uh, and really uh, your inside. Like, I have even more things to think about now after this conversation. Um, any parting thoughts uh, for listeners and maybe where, where they can find you, if they want to reach out to you or uh, where they can get more information regarding your work? Yeah, sure. I mean, I've got a uh, personal website it's uh, theopriestley.com you can find me on linkedin you can find me on twitter that's where i mainly post uh, random thoughts um yeah i mean feel free to reach out i'm always uh, accessible i'm always willing to chat to people um if they have any concerns or if they want to know any more information or work with me um yeah it's just um just get in touch. We'll leave, Happy to chat. Yeah, we'll leave uh, all, uh, everything in the show notes and the, in the YouTube video description. And Theo, really, thank you so much for No, thank for you for having me. me. And for listeners, uh, we'll see you on the next episode. Bye. That's all from today's episode. Thank you so much for watching or listening. If you find this episode valuable, you can subscribe to our YouTube channel, or to the Polyweb podcast on Spotify, Apple, or your favorite podcast app. It would be fantastic if you could leave us a rating, a review, or a comment, as this really helps other listeners find the show. All the resources mentioned in this episode will be linked in the description and in the show notes. See you on the next episode. And if you cannot wait until next week, you can watch this episode right here, that relates to some of the things that we talk about in this episode. Bye.